What's going on, everybody? This is Noah Alvarez, and you are tuned into another episode of the My Mike and I podcast. I want to thank everybody that's tuning in right now, and also want to thank Generic Sports for producing the instrumental playing in the background. You can check out more of his work at bandcamp.com slash generic sports. Also check out the homie Vince Correa. He designed the Mike and I logo that you are seeing in your screen. He also helps out a ton too with the graphics that go into the My Mike and I Instagram page. And if you're on that platform, be sure to give us a follow at my period Mike and period I. One more time, it's at my period Mike and period I. If you're on Twitter, you can follow me at underscore Noah Alvarez. It's a good way to interact with me on both platforms. Um, if you want to be in the show or have any questions about the show or just want to give some honest feedback on the show, man, those are the two best platforms to hit me up on. Now, before we get into this week's guest, two advertisements to knock out of the way real quick. Be sure to check out popple.co, P-O-P-L-D dot C-O. It's the revolutionary new digital age business card. So let's say me, myself, I want to promote the podcast, I want to promote my YouTube channel, and I want to promote my Twitter account. Well, I can buy Popple. It's a little attachment that goes back on the phone. You program the app on exactly those three things that I want to portray. And then when I meet someone, let's say, uh, well, we're not really going out right now, but let's say I run into someone at a park or on a workout or on my hike. And they're like, hey, you know, how can I listen to the podcast on your YouTube channel? Well, I just boom, tap my back of the phone to their back of the phone. And on their screen will pop up my information that I program exactly what I want to the Twitter, the YouTube, and the podcast page are all going to pop up on their screen and it's really revolutionary like i said no need for all these little business cards and carrying around in your wallet or in your pocket or in your car wherever you may carry them uh, popple just, just be sure to check it out popl.co and use promo code locker for 20 percent off one more time that's promo code locker for 20 percent off now also be sure to check out Phoenix Fit, FNXFIT.com. For all my fitness junkies out there, they have a lot of dope fitness supplements from your pre workouts, your post workouts, your BCAAs, and a ton more. Um, I've been using their Cricket Protein Powder as well as some of their CBD gummies. So shout out to them. If you use promo code My Mike and I with the letter N, you can get 15% off every single purchase that's promo code my mike and i with the letter n and another thing i like mentioning about phoenix fit too every purchase you make they donate a gallon of water to people in need across the globe through their live program so be sure to go check that out that's promo code my mike and i my mike the letter n i at phoenix fit fnxfit.com all right now let's go ahead and get into this week's episode and this is technically a bonus content i don't know if it's bonus but essentially just a delayed episode um as some of you know i didn't put out an episode the week of july or not july june 26th so i'm putting out two episodes the week of the well the first weekend of july so i got one coming out this wednesday this is the one you're listening to currently and whenever you may be listening to it but i also got one friday coming out july 3rd as regular as I said uh, last week, you know, I wasn't able to put one out on the Friday, but I've had some really good interviews. And just because what the climate of everything going on right now, I felt like it was really important to get these two interviews out as soon as I can, as soon as possible. So on this episode, I sit down and interview Jonathan Hernandez, uh, a community organizer out of Santa Ana. He's actually running for city council ward five. So if you're in the city of Santa Ana, uh, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm never that kind of be that kind of person. But I would recommend you do your research and check out Jonathan Hernandez. You could check out him and his website, hernandez4santaana.org. Or you can check him out on Instagram if you're on that platform, 
Hernandez for Santa Ana with a number four. And yeah, really great conversation. He's, uh, like I said, a community organizer. He's working around the community and he's so young too. Uh, very present in the hip hop community. That's how I met him. I met him actually uh, at the, well, I met him in person for the first time at the Juneteenth rally a while back. And we recorded this episode. We talk about a whole lot of great things. So be sure to stick out the whole way through. And yeah, without further ado, hope you enjoy the conversation between Jonathan Hernandez and myself. Whenever you're ready, man, we can get okay. started. Well, let's go ahead and get started. There's a lot of places or a lot of topics I want to hit on today, but the place I want to start on is you grew up in Santa Ana, mm-hmm. and I also read to you that you grew up without a father figure mm-hmm. or father in your family. But who are some of those father figures from outside that kind of played a role in your life? Good question. Good question. I'm going to go, um, when I think about father figures, man, my grandfather, my Enrique Prieto, mm-hmm. he, was my, he was like my dad. He was like the first guy. Because I remember being a little boy, and I remember growing up in a household with my mom and my grandma and my grandpa, and I, nobody like ever mentioned like what a dad was or yeah. what a dad did, because I didn't have it, and like I don't have a I didn't have a dad on my birth certificate, and okay. so I remember as I got older, I I, I started identifying my grandpa as my dad because mm-hmm. he did all those things that a dad should do, and then as I grew older, I learned that you know, being a dad isn't something that you just it's not something you become mm-hmm. it's something that you do right so my grandfather my grandfather did everything that a dad is supposed to do and to the day that I that I'm no longer here I'll look at him as my my dad yeah that's awesome to hear I know I have a, I had a lot of friends too in Santa Ana and even here in Orange that didn't have father figures and you know if you have a father you can't obviously know what that like experience is like but definitely like they talked to me about their experiences my dad grew up without his dad too so I was always told it at the home and then you know, just like the the lack of a father figure though at the household can be like very, it's important. I think a lot of people don't talk about how important yeah. it is for sure. And I know you mentioned too that like a lot of people gather their father figures from like hip hop or music. Yeah. And even through like you know actors or people like celebrities, right? We yeah. just had Kobe pass away, and like he was an yeah. athlete that I thought was a lot of father figures to a lot of people, and not just in Southern yeah, California, but across the world. You know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You bring up a good point. Um, for me growing up, I always looked at. People like uh, Tupac Shakur, mm-hmm. um, Dr. King, Martin Luther King. Um, I always looked at folks like that as people that I wanted to model myself after. Mm-hmm. And even nowadays, like I find myself wanting to model my work and my values off of a lot of women. I actually find more inspiration from women mm-hmm. than I do men. And I okay. think that has to do with the fact that I was raised by women. Mm-hmm. But um, people like Maya Angelou, Angela Davis... Yeah. Um, Harriet Tubman, like, these are modern day, like, superheroes to me. Yeah. And so when I look, when I look at the work that I'm doing and the work that needs to be done moving forward, and I get fatigued and I get tired, I draw inspiration from learning about them mm-hmm. and learning about how, how far they went, how they kept going, how they persisted. Mm-hmm. And it just, it reinvigorates me to continue to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, that, uh, I think, I took that from the fact that I was raised without a father and mm-hmm. my mom and my grandmother grandmother were like the modern day superheroes to me. Mm-hmm. So growing up in Santa Ana, there's a lot of temptations all around. How did you, as a kid, how did you avoid kind of getting into trouble and like how were you as a kid and what were your, some of your interests? Yeah, as a little boy, I was a, I was a very happy kid. I was, I think I was like a huge jokester though. Okay. I was always joking around. Um, I don't know if you remember, there was a movie called The Mask. Yeah, with yeah, Jim Carrey, Jim right? Carrey. Yeah. that was like my favorite. <laughs> Somebody stopped me. Like, I love that movie. Uh-huh. 
Um, but that was like one of my favorite movies. I loved Batman. Okay. Um, I liked Barney a lot. I remember Barney. <laughs> but like, I grew up loving cartoons and animation, like Toy Story, Bugs Life. Mm-hmm. All, like those are my favorites, you know. But um, how I avoided temptations, I had I have an older brother, mm-hmm. and my older brother, he's uh, he's three years older than me, but he legitimately like nurtured me, comforted me, took care of me, like. We've never gotten into a fist fight ever. Oh wow! Not right. once. Not even on our worst day mm-hmm. have we ever fist fought. Like we don't even disrespect each other. Like, and I remember when I was a little boy, he told me one day, he was like, "Our job as brothers is to never disrespect each other." Mm-hmm. And like I remember, I was like six or something, and he told me that as like a nine-year-old, like, "We're never gonna hit each other," Dang. and we promised each other, and we. That's like one of the most powerful packs that impacted my life was as a young boy talking about manhood when we were still children. And we were like, we're never going to hit each other. And he's like, you're my little brother. You know, we don't have our dad. So we got to look out for each other. Mm -hmm. So he taught me a lot and he kept me away from making bad decisions. Growing up in a community like mine, making bad decisions is almost inevitable, though. And I think that's the hard part. But I, I had a dad that made all the worst decisions. So it made making good decisions that much easier because I saw what happens when you don't. Mm -hmm. So temptations, they were a struggle early on, but as I got older, they became easier to just dismiss and and reject. At what point in your childhood, or it maybe came later in your life, but what point did you want to become someone who's active in the community and eventually run for city council like you are now? Wow, very compelling question. I think I was maybe 12 or 13 like when I started getting involved in my community like I started off as an activist that young yeah like I was a little boy and like I have pictures I could show you but like I remember I was in sixth grade and the war in Iraq was just starting Mm. like we had just launched off to war and I remember I didn't pledge allegiance to the flag as a little boy like elementary middle school like sixth grade okay like freshly in sixth grade Mr. Marzilli's class at Spurgeon Intermediate I remember we launched off to war. I was young. And, like, how do you explain terror to a sixth grader? Mm-hmm. And how do you explain going to war, you know, when we were just living our everyday life and now the country's changed forever? So I didn't understand what that meant. And as a young boy, something in me just was like, I can't pledge allegiance to this flag mm-hmm. right now. And so I remember I didn't do it and I got suspended. Oh, wow. I got suspended. And they were like, you know, why didn't you pledge? And I remember responding to my principal, Mrs. Soto. I remember I remember all their names. And I just remember saying, oh, I don't support the war. And she was like, mijo, you don't, you can still pledge allegiance and not support, not support the war. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but, you know, my cousins are going to have to fight this war. Mm. And I don't want to fight a war when I'm, when I'm 18. Yeah. You know, I want to be able to go to college. And um, I still got suspended, though, because my teacher, ironically, was a uh, was a veteran. Mm. Respect to the veterans. Mm-hmm. But um, but I was young. And so as I grew older, I got more politically involved, I think, like, by 7th and 8th grade. Mm-hmm. I started learning about feminism. I started learning about... I started learning about... Um, about, obviously, you know, how we got to war, the history of, of the Bush family, um, all the way down to how we trained you know um, Osama bin Laden yeah uh, how we oh, supplied yeah, weapons to mm-hmm. Hussein 
Because so, he was on our side back when we were fighting yeah. the communists, right? Yeah, he was working Soviet with the CIA. Union, yeah. So I remember learning about that in like 7th and 8th grade as a kid. So obviously when I got into high school, um, I got very politically involved in a local organization um, that did great work at the time. And so I was maybe in ninth grade at this time, and I threw my first concert as a kid. And this was a concert for the Iraqi orphanage. Mm-hmm. And um, so all the funds that we raised, we donated to the Iraqi orphanage. Because at the time, there was a lot of kids that were left without families yeah. because of, uh, of our attacks. Yeah. And I think history will show us that we were on the wrong side of history when it came to how we attacked and who we attacked. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of special interest at hand. And, um, and so, yeah, I'd raised funds for that. Um, we had an initiative, too. Back in the day when I was in high school, um, my brother and all my friends, it was called Food Not Bombs. Mm. Obviously, because we were in the middle of a war, um, we had a fundraiser where you could come to this concert. There were a lot of like conscious artists that were yeah. performing. We were kids, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, there was punk rock bands to crust punk bands. And you would bring a can of food mm-hmm. or some sort of a good so that we can have Food Not Bombs, right? Yeah. And it was just a really radical, cool movement for kids. Dang. And then um, 2006, we had the Million Man March in L.A. So a large group of us um, took a bus down to L.A. We marched, we protested. That was in 2006. I was a freshman. Dang. So like I started off then. Mm-hmm. And then as I moved into like my senior years of high school, I started advocating for less suspensions, um, less expulsions on our campuses. Because I found that because I was poor and because gang violence was so was was at an all time high mm-hmm. during my time my years in school, there were certain colors that you couldn't wear. Mm. Because if you did wear them you were deemed a gang member. Right. So I would challenge that as a student. And I used to challenge it like, you know, for some of us like we don't have a large wardrobe of clothes where we can just say, you know what, I can't wear this color. Like for some of us it's you know, five for ten dollar shirts. Yeah, yeah. You know, like at the factories. Right. <laughs> and it's like it's affordable. And they only come in single colors. You have your whites, your browns, your greens, your blues. Like I remember. And those are the most common right there. Yeah. yeah. And it was five for ten. Yeah. So who's gonna who's gonna say no to that? So I remember being a kid, that was part of the challenge. Was um dress code. And so like I got suspended for dress code when I was in high school. And it was hard to fight those things because nobody was advocating for for students like they are now Mm -hmm. and so it was like my generation got the short end of the stick where we now see the long term effects that suspensions and how that how that perpetuates the prison system right because when you take away the most consistent thing in a child's life which is school and you remove them from that you then in turn create a a pathway for them to go to prison and juvenile hall Mm -hmm. and jail right because you're removing education from them during a time when they need it most. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you disrupt that learning process. Mm-hmm. So then you have a kid that might be suspended because he wore the wrong color or because he showed up late to class, right? And rather than asking, how can we help you get to school yeah. on time tomorrow? Right. How can we get you a different color shirt? We, we say, you're suspended and here's why. Mm-hmm. Why don't you get a class on time? Why do you keep wearing that shirt? You're going to get fundamentally different answers. So as I grew older, I, I adopted a model where you don't ask why, you ask how. Mm-hmm. 
Because how is going to give me a fundamentally different answer? Because it's responsive. Because I might ask somebody, why were you late to class? Mm -hmm. And they might have had a hellacious night where their parents were fighting. and They're in the middle of a divorce. And that kid has to relive that trauma, right? So if I ask a student, how can I help you get to class tomorrow on time? I'm working with you. Right. Right? And, And that's what we need to see more of. So I advocated a lot for that mm-hmm. as a student, but it was a, it was definitely a process. Yeah. A process. That's one thing I, I currently work at after school pro- program in Garden Grove, the Boys and Girls Club. Oh, awesome. So that's, that's one thing I kind of emphasized too at the site I was at last year is there was one kid when I got there, I kind of got in there like two months into the semester, but he was known as a troublemaker and mm. he kind of popped off on one of the staff members and everyone was like very quick to just like, Hey, like we're going to suspend him. We're gonna not suspend him. We're gonna kick him out of a program because I think he had already like slipped up a couple times to other students and whatever. But I was like, hey, no, like let me talk to him, and I kind of broke it down to him too. Like, hey, you know, he was black. He was African American as well. So I said, hey, like because you're this way and you've done these things, people are just gonna keep associating you, and you're gonna go down this you know bad path, and they're just gonna keep taking you on the ex, you know, expelling you, suspending you, and you're gonna go down. It only gets worse as you get older, right? These kids are in middle school, or with middle school kids. So I, you know, I, I gave him another chance and I said, hey, but I need you to like, you know, not for us, but for you, like for yourself and your future, because I don't want you to go down this path. And sure enough, he got better over the course of the year. And it, it was it was like truly wonderful, though, because I think it does just having work in the school system. And it's not even with the district it's after school program. Absolutely. You get to see like how much the teachers or what the principals tell them have impact on their kids. And now the kids have like a negative thinking of themselves for being late, for missing school or for getting in trouble when I think J. Cole said it, it's like when they re- they needed a rehabilitation instead of just being thrown into prison and like what yeah, sure you're wearing the, right yeah the quote goes um, I dedicate this to all the children mm-hmm. affected in this nation by mass incarceration right. that sent your pops to prison when he needed education exactly, yeah. yeah a beautiful line and uh, that's critical like that that is where it's needed you have to remember like these are children that are growing up against very difficult environments, mm-hmm. very difficult obstacles that they have to overcome just to be a kid mm-hmm. that reaches the age of 18. Yeah. So when all you've seen is adversity, you ask for love in the most unlovable ways, mm-hmm. right? And I have a mentor, his name's Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade, and he has a quote that I think is beautiful. And he says, the most wounded child tells the most truth. It's those kids that, that act out, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think what I see when he says that is that these kids have no reason to lie. So when they act out, that's when you have to start to listen. Mm-hmm. That, that, that it, it, becomes the, it becomes their form of communication. Right. It becomes their cry for help is I have to do things that are radical and drastic to get you to listen Mm -hmm. and after so many years of not being listened to it becomes your response mechanism yeah right and that was my response mechanism for a long time um as a kid and as i grew older i had to unlearn those things and and i think that's why i take this work so serious Mm -hmm. what were some of the tougher obstacles and challenges you faced growing up before you became 18 yeah oh my goodness wow well for one you know i think living in the environment I, I lived in mm-hmm. it was particularly very difficult I, I grew up on Civic Center and Rate in probably one of the 
one of the toughest areas in Santa Ana. Mm. Like El Salvador Park. I live two houses down from it. Okay. And it was, during that time, one of the most violent neighborhoods to live in in Santana. My dad was a gang member too. Mm. He was the president of the gang where I grew up. Um, my uncles were a part of the, the neighborhood too. So the obstacles I had to overcome were generational. Because you have some families where, you know, your dad's a construction worker and your grandpa's a plumber. Mm-hmm. So you have trades and that's what your family does. Mm-hmm. My family, they, we didn't have that. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was the one success that I did see. Was He was a construction worker. He was a part of a union for, you know, 40 plus years. And he provided for us and took great care of us. So my obstacles were, where are the good men at? That was my obstacle, was where can I see people that look like me that want to help others? And it was very few and far between. But there was lots of great women and and lots of strong women that were protecting me and protecting kids like myself. Um, Some other obstacles were I had a lot of my friends that that went to prison, Mm. starting with juvenile hall, starting with suspensions. That's how it starts. Right. And uh, they ended up going to juvenile hall, jail, and eventually prison. I had a couple of friends growing up that that caught um, really grave cases, like for murder and, and stuff like that, that are doing life. And what really breaks my heart is, like, these were kids I used to play tag with. Mm-hmm. So, like, at one point in their life, they were just children. Right. And at one point in their life, all they knew was being a child. And what breaks my heart is that at some point, these kids were in a system and were in an environment where we did not utilize our resources properly to help them. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, I had a neighbor, This this neighbor, this young man was amazing. His family was great. And I remember one day turning on the news and seeing that he had, uh, he had killed a mother and, and a daughter. Oh, wow. And, um, and this was somebody I used to play tag with. Like, this kid would spend the night at my house. Yeah. And I was maybe 18 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. He was older than me. And I remember just thinking, how does that happen? I knew this kid. Mm-hmm. But then when I looked at the environments we grew up in, I looked at how little investment there was in communities like mine. Mm-hmm. I looked how at, at, at how we lacked resources that addressed our traumas mm-hmm. and the development of our families and early learning education and uh, and, and, and programs that, that are essential like that, it made sense mm-hmm. how a kid like that falls through the cracks. And that's, I think, what sparked my brain to say, okay, I'm fortunate to have had all those opportunities to self-destruct mm-hmm. and to have not chosen them consistently. And although that journey has been difficult, because it presents far more opportunities for us to fail than it does for us to succeed. I've persisted. Mm-hmm. I want to teach other young people to do the same. Mm-hmm. And, and better yet, I don't want them to be as good as me. Mm-hmm. I want them to be better, right. right? So I'm running for office to give them adequate amounts of resources so that they can do that, mm-hmm. right? Because that, that's what this work is about. It's about opening up those doors for people that have been left out. Mm-hmm. I think it's I can relate to that too because I grew up in Santa Ana off Warner and Ray and went to Greenville and um, in preteens my parents moved me out to Orange 
But I remember when Facebook got big, I was in high school, and I remember, like, Facebooking some friends that I had, you know, in elementary school and whatnot. And I remember asking about so-and-so, asking about so-and-so. And, you know, you hear different stories. And even now, as a 25-year-old, you hear, you know, different kids from, like you said, the kids you played tag with or played football with or played basketball with. Kids that I thought were smarter than me. Kids that I thought were better athletes than me. You know, they either got in trouble, you know, they had a, a kid at a really young age and just, like, you hear these different things, but at all one point in first grade, second grade, we we're all, you know, the same. We we're all just yeah. wanting, you know, to have to play, to have fun. And like I said, some kids I thought were always smarter than me. I never thought I was the smartest. I never thought I was the most athletic. But, you know, Sorry. some kids just went a little further than me or I thought could have gone further than me, ended up being set short because of, you know, certain setbacks in their life. And, you know, that, that always inspired me to, to help, you know, my community. That's why I like really like working with the kids just because, you know, everyone – we don't all get even um, starts, right? I guess that's what you could say. And it's, it's crazy, like you being born in Santa Ana, if you were born literally like 15 miles south in Costa Mesa or a nicer part of Irvine, Tustin, your life could be so much different. But you have no control over that, you know? Yeah. And if you were in the Tustin School District, maybe things would have been different. If you were in Irvine School District, things probably would have been a lot different, you know? And just because you were born on this piece of land where they don't have the, they don't put that much attention and the resources, you're going to suffer for it, you know? But I, I think... When you, when you work with kids, you realize that they're all pretty similar at the start. Absolutely. But life kind of corrupts them or life does different things to them, you know? Yeah. And, and and that's where this work is is most important is in understanding and in identifying that these are children at some point. Mm-hmm. And I'm a social worker, so I work for a, a mental health program through the County of Orange. And I work entirely with foster youth. Mm-hmm. So... I work with a group of, of amazing young children that started life at a disadvantage, mm-hmm. right? And are placed into a system where, you know, families are suffering and that trauma is passed down like generation through generation. So like envision this, like the most important person in your life today gone tomorrow yeah and then envision this the second most important person in your life is gone next year mm-hmm. like how do you feel now yeah so then envision this four years from now the only friend that you have contact with is gone too mm-hmm. and you're only seven right mm-hmm. so it's like we need to have that level of empathy and understanding mm-hmm. That these are children that we're dealing with and, and they're they're having to navigate life and adversities that are so complex at such a young age that we're doing a disservice if we're not if we're not supplying resources and programs that are attentive to trauma, mental health, um, family needs, early learning education. If we're not doing that, we are giving them the most readily accessible option. And that's to quit. We're telling youth to quit. Mm-hmm. When your dollars are not... When your budget is not reflective of the needs of your community, you're doing your city a disservice. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why children, I think, are at the core of, of, community, of community work. Mm-hmm. It's because that is how you affect multiple generations of change. Right. Because it is a little harder to change adults, but... If you get it going at a young age, these kids will have it for their entire adulthood and then they can pass it on to future generations. Absolutely. Right? Well, how do you help or how do you 
not so much you specifically, but how do we as like a group of people emphasize the importance of mental health and kind of make it more of a more of a regular thing that's so taboo you know yeah absolutely um i think that part of what we can do is have more dialogue and more conversations about the need to talk about how we feel mm-hmm. right so like you can start small like when you hang out with your friends you can start small by like listening to music mm-hmm. or when you watch a movie being like you know what did you think of that song you know like how'd you feel when you heard it mm-hmm. like you can start there like Anyone that knows me, if we watch a movie together, I'm going to be like, hey, what would you think of the movie? Yeah. What, was your, what stood out to you? Yeah. You know, what was your thought on this character? You know, what did you think he struggled with? Um, you know, it seemed like he was conflicted here, right? So I do that with my daughter all the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, my daughter is amazing. You know, she and I have conversations about mental health, and she doesn't even realize it. Oh, okay. Like, we'll watch Lion King. Yeah. And then I'll tell, like, Ebony, so, you know, what what did you learn about Simba? And she'll tell me like what she learned and I'll be like, what did Simba learn about himself? And so then now you're teaching these children comprehensive skills where she's able to identify here's where change happened in his life. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's how you can start those small mental health conversations. It's just by asking people, how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. You know, how are you feeling? So if you see something's difficult or someone's going through a difficult time, it's safe to just say, you know, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Okay. And if someone doesn't want to talk about it, you respect it. Mm-hmm. I understand. I just want to let you know if you need someone to talk to, you can reach out to me any hours of the night. Um, I, I, I'm with you. I know how difficult that is right now. Mm-hmm. And um, and just listening more. But you, you have to initiate those small conversations. And where it's discomforting is that we know there's a need for it. Mm-hmm. But we don't apply that area of dialogue where it's most critical. Right. Because guess what? If you can do it in your home, it's going to make you doing it in the community that much easier. Right. So if you can have those conversations with your brother, your mom, your dad, then in turn, the result will be you will have them much more frequently Mm -hmm. with everyone else that you meet. And then in doing so, your work will then be very reflective. Like, I don't think there's a thing I do where I'm not reflecting. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, and then like if you want to have more in-depth mental health conversations, anytime you do something, whether it's good or bad, if you're with a group of your peers, just like ask, like, hey, do you mind if we take a couple minutes just to reflect about what we just did? Mm -hmm. You know, like we were a part of a really amazing vigil, you and I, Mm -hmm. like with my team, like I was like, you know, let's reflect. Let's Mm -hmm. over a barbecue. Yeah. And let's talk about what we did and what's next. Right, so we're always attentive to our mental health. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the tip I give people: is just start small. Mm-hmm. The, and the key question is, you know, how are you? How are you feeling? How's your day? Yeah. Use any one of those three questions, or you could use all three of them. Mm-hmm. You know, but start there for sure. Yeah, and I've been really optimistic because I feel like in the past five years, I think people as a whole, especially in my generation. Mm-hmm are really pushing that conversation to have those conversations to our hope in 10 to 15 years. And I see a lot of, especially in my line of work, I see a lot of people going to school to major in psychology or, you know, I feel like in 15, hopefully sooner, but like in schools, especially in the public school systems, elementary, middle school, high school, we're going to have just as many as we have as many teachers or counselors. We have as just as many like mental health workers. Right. 
Beautiful. at every school because that's that's what I think something that would help tremendously for all those kids at those young ages who experience really big hardships and you if you can get like I said if you can knock it out before they become adults and have all that trauma built up that's one thing I've noticed too you know my father he experienced a lot of trauma that he sometimes would re, re uh, relinquish on us in a sometimes negative way but I know if he would have had some sort of help like as a kid like who, who who's to say like how different things would have been you know I hear you. I hear you. And you bring up a great point. And that's ultimately why we're having this conversation now Mm -hmm. is because of that experience. Right. And so it's, you take it with a grain of salt because dad should have had those opportunities to heal too. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, everybody deserves that. But, um, but unfortunately we're, we're starting to see, you know, uh, something that works to our advantage moving forward is that we have a generation of young people that are coming up that are more um, frequent in having dialogue that is uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be about about politics, higher education, um, you know, trauma, the conversations are happening. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the vigil on um, Juneteenth. We were both part of that. Yeah. And you spoke. But I wanted to ask you, how did you first meet Farron Kid with the Black OC and get partnered up with him? Absolutely. So Farron Kid is my brother from another mother, like, to the fullest. Yeah. Like, like, this this gentleman and I are uh, are very much brothers. And um, we met in 2017. And Farron has a beautiful story, very strong story. Um, I take inspiration from a lot of people, and he's definitely one of those individuals. And so he and I met. I was doing a lot of community work. You know, I've been doing community work now for about... 10 plus years now. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a couple of different community events that he was attending um, where I was a, I was a part of the organizing committees for them. Um, one of them most notably was called The Roses That Grew From Concrete. I threw a concert. Mm-hmm. And this concert, it had a conference portion and a concert. Mm-hmm. So it started from, I think, 10 a.m. and it ended at midnight. Mm-hmm. So like full day. And so this event was a social change event that utilized hip-hop, the arts, and education as a building model to disrupt mass incarceration. Mm. So the conference portion included a panel that was focused on narrative therapy through the arts. So how are people able to effectively reauthor their identity through the power of hip-hop and education, right? Like how do you rewrite your story? through learning mm-hmm. and through being a hip-hop supporter. Uh, number two was we had a, um, a, a dialogue um, that, was, that was had between a victim and a perpetrator. Two opposing gangs. One gang member that shot the other. Mm-hmm. And, the, and both, both of these gentlemen are now friends. Mm-hmm. And they shared their stories. Wow. And so, like, somebody got shot in the face by the other guy and they spoke at this conference and they talked about the power of healing and education and how they were able to do that through education Mm -hmm. come to that space of healing right and then we had a lecture by KRS One which was huge wonderful I saw him in concert at the observatory and he the he, was, he was rapping and then he was also mm-hmm. like preaching to us that was wonderful it's KRS One yeah so we had a, a lecture by KRS One like once in a lifetime stuff. Yeah. And then we had, after that conference was over, 
we had a healing circle, which was private, which included all the artists that were performing, mm-hmm. from KRS One to Maya Jupiter to Blinds Brixton and Gifted Gab, um, Roses and Concrete, a, a community school out in Oakland, mm-hmm. um, legislators. We had elected officials. We had students in the room. We had everybody that you could think of that is a hope dealer and a change maker yeah. in this room having dialogue in private about how can we continue to build. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Then after that, we had the concert. The concert included everyone from Karis One to Aloe Black to Reverie to Blimes Brixton and Gifted Gab, Ruby Ibarra, um, the Philharmonic, um, the list goes on. Like This was a stacked lineup. Mm-hmm. And it was a community event. And so it was all about social change. It was all about disrupting the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And it was all grassroots. So Farron and I really became close then through that. Mm-hmm. Because I've been working in the black community for many years now. And I've been building with them. And, you know, my family's both black and brown. Mm-hmm. And so when, when he and I connected, he reached out. And we sat down at a Starbucks. Right. And he was like, hey, you know, how did that event happen? And I was like, well, I've been doing this for a while now. Like, this is, we, we throw events like this. Yeah. We do it once a year. And he was like, um, that had to be one of the most authentic representations of hip-hop I've seen. Mm-hmm. Because there was nothing ignorant about it. It was black and brown. He's like, that, that was the most black people I've seen in Orange County yeah. in a long time. And I was like, that's common for for my work. Mm -hmm. We work with the black community very closely um, because, you know, black liberation is brown liberation. Mm -hmm. So these conversations were happening years ago. And I remember in our meeting, I talked about a brand that I built. And the brand was called Building Community Through Hip Hop. Mm -hmm. And I said, what I do is I build community through hip hop. I do it across the state of California. And the result of building community through hip hop is intersectional community organizing. So you're able to pass legislation, you're able to advocate for policies at the grassroots level, and you're able to provide service. Mm -hmm. And you do it through the power of hip-hop. Build communities. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's another movement that I I want to expand upon that we need to build. And and he was like, what is that? And I was like, it's black and brown excellence. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what's that? And I was like, that's... Uh, that's a platform for intersectional organizing mm-hmm. where you know we're two communities that have been dismissed silenced funneled through the prison system deported and targeted by police mm-hmm. and we're not reminded of our excellence we come from royalty and I said so let us exemplify that let us accentuate the excellence that is your community and the excellence that is mine mm-hmm. And let us come together and let's do it as one. And it's black and brown excellence. Mm -hmm. And so we began to move on on building that. And so since he and I met that day, he was like, how come you didn't do anything with it? And I was like, because I was waiting for you. (laughs) Like, it sounds silly, but I I, I truly meant, I mean that. Yeah. Like, I sat on that for years and I couldn't do nothing with it because in theory, it sounds cool. Sounds beautiful, right? But life isn't just lived on theory. Right. Like, you need to find someone that wants to not only exemplify it, but wants to advance it. Mm-hmm. And Farron wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, take it, man. 
take it. I'm going to be right alongside you. I'm going to be supporting you and uh, amplifying your voice in all the ways that I could. Mm-hmm. And he's somebody that inspires me. I'm empowered by, by Farron. Yeah. I've only heard him speak twice, but I, I'm really inspired by him as well. And that's something I talked about with um, Doughboy Tony. I recorded an interview with him earlier this week. I don't know if you're familiar with the artist. Yeah, he's awesome. I'm I, I yeah. really proud of his my rasa and mm-hmm. what he's doing. But yeah, we were just talking about how a lot of different people could say what Farron Kid says at his speeches, but the way he says it kind of leaves a certain impact on you for a longer period of time. And it reminds you of the great speakers that you listen or that you learn about in history books like uh, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or some of those guys where he's, he has a little bit of militancy to him, but he's very poetic about it as well. I and, love his militancy. Yeah. I love yeah, it. Because you need it for something at, at this magnitude, for a movement like this. And I just to touch on what you said earlier too, the building the community through hip hop, I love that because I'm a huge hip hop fan. And from my early days, like my parents, my dad specifically, and a lot of my uncles, you know, they played a lot of like Public Enemy, um, a lot of NWA, a lot of, and that, and they played a lot of other music too. They had a really good like music library, but those songs and artists stood out to me a lot. So when I got older, I really like dove deep into like Lupe Fiasco, uh, Absol, and a lot of artists that were kind of like even Kendrick Lamar. J. Cole now is one of my favorite artists, Joey Badass as well. But just going back to the visual, when we all held up, I was a part of that moment where everyone held up either a brown or black excellence shirt, and we're all standing side by side. You know, the blacks were holding brown excellence, and brown people, Latinos, were holding up the black excellence. And it just reminded it was, it was super powerful, man. That almost made me like cry right after because uh, there was a song by Absol called Terrorist Threats. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with it. But he, he says in the song and the chorus, you know, if if all the gangs in the world unified, we stand a chance against the military tonight. And I always thought he meant like little like Bloods and Crips, the Vatos and every like yeah, gang. Yeah, I think, I think he is talking about that. Yeah, but I when, when we did that, I felt like it meant it was bigger than that. It was like the LGBT family reuniting with the black excellence and brown pride family. And just all like, you know what I mean? It's just more than like your local street gangs. It's communities as a whole unifying together. And I'll cheers to that. Yeah, <laughs> for real. And do you have water? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's cheers to it. Um... <laughs> And that's why I, I uh, when I met Farron, I was like, look, Farron, black and brown excellence is needed mm-hmm. because, you know, school's not prisons. It's powerful. But for some people, you know, education isn't their, isn't their lane. It's not something they're passionate about. Some people want to graduate high school and go right into a trade yeah. and become a carpenter or whatever it may be. And that's valuable, too. Mm-hmm. So I said, but black and brown excellence, it covers everything. It, it's intersectional. And I said, because there's one thing, we will always be first. I said, Farron, if you were an architect, mm-hmm. or if you were an educator, or if you were a musician, it wouldn't matter to America because you'd be black first. Right. And I said, and if I were a scholar, if I were an astronaut, or if I were a dancer, I'd be a brown architect. I'd be a brown astronaut first. Right. So I said, so we got to deal with that. And I said, so let us let us be excellent if that's what we are first to America. And let us empower people through their identities. And I think we've done a good job at doing that. And it's crazy because that, like, that was a conversation had between two individuals in private. Mm-hmm. And then three years later, almost four years later, there's a community holding up 
the black community holding up brown excellence shirts and brown community holding up black excellence shirts. Mm-hmm. There was a time, I don't know if you've ever seen the picture on Instagram, where it was just Farron and I. I wore um, black excellence and he wore brown excellence. And we we started there, just he and I wearing that. Uh-huh. And it happened on accident. Like, I had a black excellence shirt. He made me... Well, he made brown excellence and black excellence shirts. It just so happened that I took the black excellence one, he wore the black brown one. Uh-huh. And then we were like... I think uh, the world needs to see more of that. Yeah. You know? And um, we stand in solidarity with the the black community and Black Lives Matter absolutely, especially here, mm-hmm. especially in my city. And I'm going to I'm gonna make sure that we kick in the doors mm-hmm. so that we have opportunities for the black community here. Mm-hmm. I don't care if there's 1% or a million percent in my community. If, we're, if we have one or 10,000 members of the black community, we will go to bat to make sure that their voice is heard and that they they have the resources that their families need. Mm-hmm. And to take it a step further, that we empower them to run for office mm-hmm. so that they have a seat at the table too. Mm-hmm. Because having me, you know, advocate for the community, that's just not enough. We need more. We need more people to come out and to support these issues and to boldly show us that Black Lives Matter. Not just say it, but to show us because I know for damn sure my community, we matter. Yeah. Orange County has not showed us that black lives matter. Right. Historically, they've not. In my community, like we've had to fight for our equity and for our um, freedom and dignity. Mm-hmm. Like it was a long battle. But we have that experience. Mm-hmm. We have that platform. We have those resources now. We have those buildings so let us do something good with it. Mm-hmm. Let us open up doors to make those fights easier for a community that needs us most right now. Right. And there's different areas where you can go to because it's been echoed at a lot of the rallies and protests that I've been to, but we need more black and brown people in all positions of power, not just politics and in Absolutely. office. But I was listening to a podcast the other day that there's only one black principal in an entire Orange County. Like Orange County is a ah. big ass county and a lot Absolutely. of schools... You know, they just think about all the schools that are in Orange County. There's only one black principal, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I know off of percentage wise, there's more black people in Orange County than that. that yeah, what absolutely. that represents, you know, so it's just it's just getting like people their foot in the door, so we're we're not just seen as like Mexicans or brown people are laborers and they you know work on landscaping or work with their hands. They can do other things too, like you said, being an astronaut, being an educator, being a principal, and same thing for the black being community. Being a counselor, well. a being a counselor, worker. exactly. Anything. It doesn't have. You don't have to be. You know a big famous person but sometimes even just being a teacher because i would talk about it on a few other podcasts as well i think the first like person of color that i had as a teacher i want to say was in high school i had and there were my spanish teachers i was actually in middle school so the only people of color that i had up until college was spanish teachers that were Hmm. persons of color a lot of my teachers have been like predominantly white great point Mm -hmm. and it's just something that you as a kid, you constantly see that. Well, okay, then if you're a brown or black kid growing up, you're like, okay, well, then I can't be a teacher because that's not what's portrayed to me. All these white people are teaching me. And there's a whole, I can go into the, about history books too and like how I disagree you're with some deep. of the things, yeah, that they teach you. But, you know, it's just, I feel like we need to have more people of our community everywhere, not just, you know, in one lane. You are touching on something so important. <laughs> and I think that's why, like, Santa Ana can only speak to Santa Ana. Um, we have one in 10 kids that will graduate college. Mm-hmm. So we can get kids to college. Like, that's not a problem. 
but to get them to finish. Like it's one in ten kids, right? Mm. So you brought something up that is so crucial to that data because you're going through 13 years of education. Like that's the amount of years we spend in public ed, right? Yeah. But how many opportunities and how many times are kids seeing themselves lead that classroom? So the purpose of education in communities like mine isn't to become an educator. It's to leave your community. Mm -hmm. Like that's the value of education is like, get this and get out of here. Go to college and don't come back. Yeah. So what's the value of that if my community isn't good enough, mm-hmm. right? Because when you have a a system of education where neighbors are teaching their neighbors, where people like you and I are teaching folks that come from our communities, the value of that education is going to be significantly higher. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis on higher education is going to be there. So more kids are going to be inclined to say, on their hardest days, I remember Maestra XYZ, right? And maybe that inspires them to become a teacher. Right. But but I think you touched on something so critical. And, and ultimately, it's because we don't see ourselves in those positions where we are making change, mm-hmm. right? And um, to take it a step further, that does something to our kids. It does something to our kids because they have teachers that they know are not willing to be in their neighborhood past 5 o'clock p.m. Yeah. Right? Right. So what do you think that does to these kids? Mm -hmm. My teacher is good enough to work for my school, but isn't, isn't, uh, doesn't see enough value in my community to live here. Mm -hmm. Right? So these kids, they don't get to choose that. Mm -hmm. They have to stay here. And, um, part of how that affects, how that affects how we develop children in Santa Ana is because kids are seeing violence and drugs and funerals before graduations, like how that affects kids is that there was a study that was done. There's a book called The Boy Who Was Raised by a Dog. The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Dr. Bruce Perry. Mm -hmm. And amazing studies were done by this doctor. And, um, And this book details trauma and how it affects the development of children. And what we have found in the field of psychology and in neurology was that children that are experiencing unnatural living conditions are experiencing PTSD at a rate that is higher than soldiers leaving the battlefield. Wow. As a matter of fact, it's so complex that the field of psychology re-diagnosed it. And it's now called CPTSD, chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. Because kids have to relive their trauma every day living in these communities. Mm. Because where your dad might have gotten shot or where your best friend might have gotten picked up and deported, you have to walk past that every day. Yeah. Right? So it's like these kids relive that. Wow. So I take that into account when I do my my work in the community Mm -hmm. because I know there's parts in my neighborhood that certainly affect me. Mm -hmm. So going back to your work in the community... Mm -hmm. How did you get started with Santa Ana Unidos and as well as the roses that grew from concrete? I got started because there was no place for kids like myself. Um, I became a father at a very young age. I was 17 years old at the time. And I was just finishing high school. And um, it's so difficult to say because I don't even want to say it was foreign to me. It was almost like part of the process it felt like Mm -hmm. and um 
you know, growing up in, in my city, young men and women are sexualized at a very young age. Oh, yeah. Um, there isn't sexual education, like, the, during the time that I was growing up in Santana. There was no... In our, our community was definitely not proactive in having these conversations with kids, mm-hmm. and they're very, very much needed. And um, and I was just a young kid that that was that was just unaware of of what happens when you aren't being safe and you're not, you know, being educated about what you're doing. I was I was a child, and um, I became a parent, and I remember navigating school and being a parent at a young age and having to work and then I remember becoming 18 and having to get my first apartment Mm -hmm. 333 South Flower Street apartment 18 I I will never forget it Mm -hmm. I paid $975 a month Wow. and um, and I remember being proud of being able to provide for my daughter at 18 I had a union job which helped me do that Mm -hmm. but um, I remember just it being extremely difficult and then that's when I realized how little resources are out there in the community to support kids that are developed through trauma. Mm-hmm. Because there's kids that are developing through music, kids that are developing through education, but then there's kids that live in communities like mine, mm-hmm. where you're surrounded by police, you're surrounded by um, violence mm-hmm. and gangs and trauma and drugs. Right. And so that becomes your developmental system. And then, so how do we reach those kids? How do we change their lives mm-hmm. when we don't even want to acknowledge them? And I think that's the hard part is you have to acknowledge that these kids are experiencing that. Mm-hmm. And so as I grew as a, as a young father, I started to see how little systems were in place to help those kids. And I got involved in activism in different activist organizations. And I saw how little people like myself mm-hmm. had a seat at the table. I saw definitely people that came from higher ed, um, definitely a lot of Latinx folks, but I didn't see kids that came from generational, um, you know, houses where, where we had, you know, gang trauma and, you know, violence and drug abuse in the household. I didn't see a lot of kids like myself at the table. And so I opened up these organizations because I saw a need Mm -hmm. to help kids that, our community didn't want to uh, allocate resources to. Mm-hmm. I saw kids that needed a place to go where they can be safe mm-hmm. because maybe they would get shut out and kicked out of the Boys and Girls Club. Right. Right? I needed a place. I needed to open a place where kids can just be kids and be accepted and where we can provide unconditional love and unconditional care. And it presented many challenges to do that. I was 22 years old at the time when I did it. And I, it started off with a boxing club. And um, opening a boxing club, in, in theory, it was amazing and it was needed. But then I saw how many barriers came in providing services. Right. Because you have to pay for a building. You have yeah. to pay for insurance. And then you have landlords mm-hmm. that want to capitalize on not the good that you're doing, but on the fact that they can take money from you. Yeah. And I started to see that more and more. Mm-hmm. And it, it made progress extremely difficult because I was a 22-year-old kid that wanted to do good in the community because I saw that my city was not stepping up mm-hmm. to invest in young people. Right. 
And so there's a quote that says, successful people grew tired of having things happen to them. So they decide to go out and happen two things, mm. right? So that was my response is like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to happen to these things mm-hmm. and I'm going to do my best to provide a place for kids to box, right? So we did that. It got extremely expensive and, uh, and it got progressively more difficult as time went on. And we wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of Labor's Local 652, which is a local labor union in Santa Ana. They helped us out. Wow. with making sure that we paid our rent. Um, but then moving forward, Roses in the Concrete was focused very much on the school-to-prison pipeline. So doing work with students and addressing and acknowledging everything that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like all of that trauma, all of those other things that get in the way of a kid's self-actualization. Roses in the Concrete aimed to do that, mm-hmm. right? But then again, it's like we didn't have federal funding we didn't have thousands of grant dollars. Wow. And I was a single father, a, a young kid that was looking to do this. And it was just, there was no place for the work that I was looking to do mm-hmm. to be supported. And then even in trying to align and, and, and affiliate with different organizations that were activist organizations, they were already not advocating for these issues. Mm-hmm. They were already not advocating for kids that we were looking to serve. So it made it particularly very difficult to provide services that I thought were needed. Mm -hmm. And um, now we're at a time where people now understand, okay, something needs to be done. So I think that at the time, the community wasn't ready for the work that we were doing. Mm -hmm. Because like building with the black community, we've been doing that for years. It shouldn't have taken police killings for us to value their lives right and to value now accessing and reaching the black community Mm -hmm. because people like myself had already been doing it for years Mm -hmm. and we were not supported we didn't get grant dollars we didn't have the hundreds of thousands of dollars we did it all as volunteers Mm -hmm. and it made things extremely difficult but we knew the need for it right and so that's why Farron and I became really close was because he was like yo how don't you guys have funding for it? And I was like, tell me where it's at. Yeah. You know, this is, we have a quote and it's like, this is real work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said that at the vigil. Yeah, like, this exhausting. is, this is, it's not just work that you do for a day and you're like, okay, I protested. Yeah. We'll wake up tomorrow and things are going to be better. Like yeah, this no. is real work. Like folks are really out here in the trenches mm-hmm. and, and they're happy to be in those trenches to do that work. And I was proud to do this work and not get paid for it mm-hmm. because this, to me, this is a, this is a part of my responsibility. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, I, I couldn't envision me doing something different. Yeah. Like there's no way, like even if it costed me money to do it, I'd yeah. do it, you know, but it's just, I, I, I know how much I would have needed it when I was a kid. Right. And I know how many friends it would have saved. Had we had this when I was a young boy, I probably wouldn't have had a lot of friends that wouldn't have went to prison. Mm-hmm. That's why if you look at like my social media, I proudly represent Artesia Pilar mm-hmm. and I proudly represent my ward because I don't see young people coming from my ward. Mm-hmm. I don't see young people coming from Artesia Pilar because most of my friends ended up gangbanging and ended up dead or in prison. Mm-hmm. 
So I pay homage and I pay respect to those that fell through the cracks Mm -hmm. because their lives were valuable too. Mm -hmm. So that's what my work is about. It's about valuing people unconditionally. It's about providing unconditional care and unconditional love to everybody, Mm -hmm. even the folks I disagree with most. And that's where I'm most proud of is that you learn you learn about yourself and your work through how you treat people that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. And Farron and I have done a good job in being graceful with folks that aren't on the same page with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hope that in time that we are able to effectively create a place for dialogue that is both safe and inclusive that has values of empathy, hope, and compassion mm-hmm. so that people can start that process of learning, mm-hmm. right? Because racism is not, there's nothing natural about it. No. It's taught. Yeah. Right? Just like love and hope is taught. Like somebody taught you that skill and that's why you're having this conversation right now. Right. Because you see value in it. And somebody taught me that skill. Mm-hmm. I had mentors to do that. Um, so we need to do more of it. And I, going based off of that, and then I'll ask you something else afterwards. Yeah. But just, I studied communications and I learned about how the mass media affects just like people, the masses as a whole. And I know now a lot of our cartoons and shows are more progressive, but you know, back then there was a lot of shows that portrayed Asians as this, portrayed Mexicans and blacks as this. You know what I'm saying? So institutionally it was taught, sometimes not even by our teachers or by people in power, but a lot of times by just the, uh, what do you, like, what is it, the uh, the media corporations, you know? And there's only, I, I still get a trip off of remembering this statistic because I, I believe it's like about 94 or 95% of media, so that means like radio stations, TV stations are owned by six different companies, right? Yeah. The Disney Corporation, the people who own Fox, I think it's 20th Century at Fox. Now Disney owns that. Okay, so phew, now it's probably five then. Um, yeah. Turner, which owns TBS, TNT, and a few other channels. Huh. And then I forgot the three other ones. But- Does Oprah have stake in that? I don't think she... Well, if she does, she might have the other 5%. But ah. I remember it was like mid-90% were owned by those six companies. So all the radio stations, all the TVs, that's why they sound so similar mm. because those companies are all trying to put off the same message. And sure, you know, I'm sure they're getting more progressive as time has come, but for a long time, I'm sure they portrayed a lot of negative images. You yeah, know what I'm saying? That really kind of just developed a lot of bad stereotypes about people and then just, you know, continue to separate our people. Um, yeah, black and brown communities, Asian communities as well, people of minorities or uh, people of color, you know? Absolutely. And then also transitioning off what you said earlier too, because I think this is a time for change, but I, I thought things were going to change in 2014 after Trayvon Martin. I thought things were going to change in 2016 after Ferguson, Missouri. What do you think? And I'll ask bigger picture and also just Santa Ana and Orange County, but do you think Santa Ana and Orange County and then bigger picture, the world is ready to make this change systematically yeah I think that um, we need systemic change I Mm -hmm. think we need to do it we can start locally Mm -hmm. right and then we can work our way up to federal change Um, when you look at the landscape of America and and what we've experienced over the last couple of years you know um, I can only speak to my community right now that in Santa Ana historically this city is not cared about black people. Mm -hmm. There's woke spaces like activist organizations that had money 
and resources and buildings that have built zero alliances with the black community. And these are supposed to be our hope dealers, mm-hmm. right? So like if even some of our most woke spaces don't see the value in it, then that's where we have to start. You change your world, you change the world, mm-hmm. right? But you got to start with yours. Mm-hmm. So what we got to do is we have to have these conversations internally in our homes with our family members, with the people that we love, all the way down to like your relationships, mm-hmm. right? And you can't throw people away. Mm. So when folks are not knowing or maybe say something ignorant, don't take that as an opportunity to throw someone away. Right. Cancel culture. Yeah. You, you have to see value in learning. So let us create that, right? Start there. Once you can do that and you can create and embrace dialogue, then change will slowly start to happen. Like, I know there's people talking about abolishing police, mm-hmm. right? And there's people talking about defunding police. And then there's strategies, right? So it's like, you cannot abolish something without slowly taking away power. Mm-hmm. Like, defunding is part of that strategy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's step one, right? Right? So when you look at systemic change, where it's most needed is in our communities of color Mm -hmm. and in how we interact with each other. If we can systemically change how we build, then we're going to see something revolutionary because history taught us this. Mm -hmm. You either build or you destroy where you come from. Right. Right. So let us build and let us build political power. And then let us show up to City Hall. Let us show up to, you know, vote. Let us show up to support black businesses. Let us show up to free kids from deportation centers. Let us show up to embrace black leadership. Mm -hmm. Let us show up to have more women in power. Let us show up to support developing children. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, systemic systemic change is inevitable. You, you wouldn't be able to move away from it. That's going to be the result of it is something critical. And when you when you're able to do all these things, I think that in turn, over the next four to eight years, we will see a lot more investment in communities. Mm-hmm. Because what we're talking about nationwide with this issue of policing, it's not foreign. Mm-hmm. Because our country has been defunding education for a long time. Right. Since 1980, the state of California has built 23 prisons. Right. And the University of California has built one campus Mm -hmm. since 1980, right? How come people don't think that's radical? Yeah. That's insane. Right. So, look at this. We're in Orange County. Santa Ana is a neighboring city to Irvine. Mm-hmm. Irvine was the safest city in the U.S. Mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Yeah, but guess what? Nobody calls it defunding the police in Irvine. Because they've already done it. They allocate more resources to developing their neighborhoods yeah. and their youth and their family and their families than they do policing their families and their right. communities. 
there's not a neighborhood you're going to live in where you see police officers drive multiple times down your street Mm -hmm. because that's not their interest. Their interest is not to suppress their residents. Their interest as a city is to develop their families. Mm -hmm. So when a family has a domestic dispute, they're not sending officers with their guns out. They're responding to issues as needed. Right. So when a young man, when a young man has a DUI and crashes into a pole in Irvine, they respond to that differently. Yeah. They resource their community centers. They add more resources to supporting families. Mm-hmm. Santa Ana, it's expected. So when a young kid dies, you don't see a grieving mother on TV because that's a part of that process. There's a different quality of life here, right? Yeah. So why don't we have that same energy Mm -hmm. in suppressing our people with police? Why don't we have that same energy in eradicating poverty? Mm -hmm. Homelessness, too. Homelessness, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why don't we advocate to have a across the table minimum wage in Santa Ana mm-hmm. a rent cap a affordable housing policy that is equitable for our residents mm-hmm. um, a just cause eviction policy um, why don't we advocate for things like that and when you do that in turn you will have a more equitable safe community that's the result Right. so it's nothing radical what people are asking for they're just asking to be invested in. Right. And investments and in, pu- in public safety doesn't mean that you have to send me to jail or prison. Mm-hmm. It just means that you shouldn't see me as only a criminal. Right. Dang, that was deep. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Love hearing that stuff. It, it's just, Going- it's, that, it's that real stuff that, that we just need to talk more about mm-hmm. because it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's like, Cities are already doing this. Right. They're just not happening in urban cities. Cities that need it, right. They're happening in affluent cities. Mm -hmm. They're happening in affluent cities like Irvine. Mm -hmm. They're not happening in Santa Ana. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't have police, who's going to arrest those criminals? Mm -hmm. Well, why are we looking at our people like criminals? Right. Fundamentally, something's wrong there. Yeah. Right? Because I don't see a criminal. I see my brother. Mm -hmm. I see my neighbor. I see a child. I see a dad. So why do you see that, right? So fundamentally, there's something different. Mm-hmm. Ironically, my opponent is a sheriff. Really? That I'm running against, yeah. The city council ward five? Mm-hmm. Wow. My opponent's a sheriff. Okay. What's the, bit, what's the biggest challenge as far as running for a city council position? Is this your first time running? Absolutely, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not a fan of politics. I, mm. Like, I am very much not a politician. Okay. Um, I'm a community organizer. Um... I'm a boy that comes from Santa Ana's ghettos and I'm proud of it, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm a father more importantly, but, um, but I, I'm a man of the people, mm-hmm. you know? So the challenge is this getting people to getting people to see value in our residents because so many of our residents have went through adverse living experiences. So many of them have been harmed. So many have went through trauma. So many are still trying to just make it, right? Mm -hmm. That we dismiss them and we critique them Mm -hmm. 
for all of their imperfections and their flaws. I marvel at them. I embrace their tenacity to keep on going, right? I think that's the biggest challenge is I'm running for city council in a ward that is not a very popular ward, Mm -hmm. but it's where I'm from and I'm proud of it. My ward has a lot of good history and it has a lot of history that has affected my people, good and bad. So there's three values that I have. And it's hope, compassion, and equity, right? So it takes a great deal of hope to experience all of what Santa Ana has to offer and to still want to keep going mm-hmm. and to still want to stay in the city. It takes a great deal of compassion to know that our residents are not defined by their mistakes. And it takes experiencing injustices to know that our people deserve equity. Mm-hmm. So... That's, uh, I think, the biggest challenge is always having hope, compassion, and equity at the forefront of my work. My opponent seems to be a nice guy. Mm-hmm. I'm very respectful of him. And I, I, I'm i not somebody that operates in a, in a way where I like to dismiss people right. or, or talk down to them. That's just not my style. But um, we're fathers. He's a dad, too. We both have daughters. I, I, I respect that. Mm. But... Um, but he doesn't have the same lived experience that I have in my community. Right. And I think that ultimately that is what will prevail. Mm -hmm. And I know firsthand how hard I go for my community. Mm -hmm. I don't need a title to do this work. I don't need to win this election to, to do good for my community. Mm -hmm. I'll continue to do it. It's just, if I have that seat, I can do it at a much larger scale and amplifies. Yeah. And I can create policies that will truly protect our residents mm-hmm. and um, that's why I'm doing it that's wonderful. but ultimately you know if, if, if it's not in God's plan mm-hmm. then I will still continue to do this work mm-hmm. and that's one thing I think that needs to be especially in policing too how can you police that community if you've never lived in that community how can you represent that community if you've never lived in that community how can you teach that community if you've never lived that community so I think it's something that goes in politics but in a lot of different areas as well yeah. yeah. I know you got to go, but so we, before we wrap things up, I do like to ask a couple fun, quick hitters just Let's to kind of get the audience to know you a little bit more. Yeah. If you could talk to any person in history, dead or alive, who would you want to chat with? I love that question. Rosa Parks. Ooh, okay. Yeah, Rosa Parks. Just because, obviously, before the, the bus strike, mm-hmm. it, was, it was over 380 days, right? But that woman was so inspiring and even all the way down to how she led a lot of the fights before that happened. Mm -hmm. She's an inspiration. Rosa Parks, um, Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. Maya Angelou is probably the most influential to me. Mm -hmm. My daughter is named after her. My daughter's name is Ebony Maya. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tupac Shakur, of course. Tupac Shakur, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, Jesus Christ, yeah, <laughs> he was a G. Like he's the OG activist, right? Yeah. Like he was pro-immigrant. Like he was, he was with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. I would definitely chop it up with Jesus. I'd be like, yo, so let's talk about this, man. Okay. No. I think, yeah, I think those are the folks I talk to for sure. Okay. Yeah. If you could visit any time period or history, where would you want to visit? Mm. Civil rights movement. Mm. 
the sixties. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I definitely would have been a part of that. Mm-hmm. I probably I probably would have got killed by police, <laughs> but I definitely would have got I would have been a part of that. Mm-hmm. I think another time too would be the uh, Mexican Revolution. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, what's crazy is a lot of people don't know that was black and brown led. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they had slaves in Mexico too. And yeah, the, and they stood with us. Uh-huh. Mexico was one of the first countries to abolish slavery mm-hmm. and as a result we had a black president wow yeah so what was his name let me get his he name. only served I, I remember hearing about that I forgot his name but I me- yes, he only yes. served like what two or three months uh, well this this brother hold on one second mm-hmm. hold on this brother had a powerful powerful um history in in our country and in what he ended up doing for Mexico. His name was Vicente Guerrero. Okay. Right? So, he was president for, yeah, just a couple of months. Not too long. Dang. And um, the thing about him was that he he led, he was one of the lead revolutionary generals. Mm-hmm. And this was in the Mexican War of Independence. And he fought against Spain. He fought against our colonizers. Mm-hmm. And so, what an inspiration. Yeah. Right? And, um... Yeah, I think I would have visited that time, for sure. Last few ones. If you could have any kind of exotic pet, what would you want to have? Mm. I'm going to go with a, uh, a lion. Okay. Yeah, nice. I got a lion tattooed on my arm. I oh, okay, okay. Yeah. All right. And then if you were stranded on an island and you needed food and water provided, but what were three things you would want to bring with you to pass the time? Food and water? Yeah, food and water provided, so you don't have to worry okay. about those. Even though food and water provided. Gummy bears, for okay. sure. Gummy bears. <laughs> Music, without a doubt, music, mm-hmm. and uh, I can pick people or no? Yeah, you can pick people. My daughter. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. All right, and then last one, if you could give any advice to your younger self, what would it be? Keep going. Mm-hmm. Keep going. And no matter how hard it gets, always be graceful. Mm-hmm. I think that would be my advice. Because... Like being a young father and inserting yourself into a community that doesn't want to see people like us do good and doing good, it presents a lot of opportunities to quit mm-hmm. and to stop. And my advice to my younger self would be keep going and when times get tough, remember to just always be graceful mm-hmm. to you first, right? Because we're not graceful to ourselves enough. Mm -hmm. And so just giving myself that permission to just be soft. Mm -hmm. Right. So that'd be my advice. Well said. Really want to thank you again for hopping on the show. Absolutely, brother. Thank you. If you you want to plug anything, um, how people could vote for you or your Instagram, whatever you want to promote, go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, um, follow black OC. Mm -hmm. Um, they're doing critical work here in orange County. And, um, we need to amplify black voices, so follow Black OC. Um, follow Mobilize the People, um, OC Protests. Um, another, you know, a couple of black organizations doing amazing work in Orange County. Mm-hmm. We, we certainly need to make sure that we have a, a hub for the black community so that they can empower and build community respectively, mm-hmm. and we can support them. Um, secondly, um, make sure that you register to vote. Yeah. And use your voice this election season, because if you don't, someone else will use it for you. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and that's a scary thing. Um, do your research on on the state um, electeds. Focus on those races. I'd say if you're conflicted with presidential races, focus on Congress and Senate. Right. Focus there. At least we can pass legislation through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, if you are a Santa Ana resident, um, continue to hold your head up high. Um, stay strong. Um, don't give up this fight. Um, this is going to be a long battle for equity and justice. And um, I encourage you just to uh, keep persisting. Um, if you listened all the way through, I thank you. And um, if you want to get involved, um, you know, vote this election season. If you want to get involved in our campaign, send us a message. Um, our website is HernandezForSantaAna.org. And um, you can follow us on Instagram at Hernandez for Santa Ana, um, number four, not four. Okay, awesome. Well, cool. Thank you very much again. Thanks, thanks. You want to do something uh, before we go? Yeah, sure. I guess we'll end it with like, like um, my go-to song right now. Go-to song? Yeah. Okay, go do ahead. The, do you have the capacity to do it? To uh, what do you mean? Like, like play one it, right now? Like end it on a song? Yeah, I can play one off my phone. Well, I can do it on my phone. Yeah, you can do it on your phone. Okay, yeah, cool. Fine. So, in light of what's been happening here, mm-hmm. I'll share a song that um, that's really just been like I've been listening to it a lot, and so I have um, obviously a strong passion for hip hop. Yeah. But if I can leave anyone with something, it would be a song, mm-hmm. and then you know just advance the work yeah. that is being done but check it out ahead, so this play. artist his name is Saba uh-huh. and oh. the song is called Sirens I know Saba yeah so check it out alright and then we'll close up have you watched the video? I have not watched oh, the check, video check the video out
it's about what's happening today. Yeah. Hundred percent. It's about an innocent man getting killed by police. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, brother. Yeah, of course. Thank you for showing me that. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Boom, Noah Alvarez here to wrap things up again. If you really enjoyed that conversation between Jonathan Hernandez and myself, be sure to leave a rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating and review. I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're listening on Spotify, SoundCloud, or the many other platforms, be sure to follow, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. But if you can, you know, share the podcast with someone you think may enjoy the podcast as well. I'd greatly appreciate any support of the podcast. A reminder, check out Phoenix Fit. You can use promo code my mic and I with the letter N for 15% off. Check out popple.co for 20% off. Oh, well, use promo code locker for 20% off on that website. And don't forget to check out the my mic and I Instagram page at my period mic and period I. You can also follow me at Twitter or on Twitter at underscore Noah Alvarez. Yeah, that's going to be a wrap for this week's show. A reminder, we have two episodes coming out this week, the weekend of July 3rd. A lot more content coming out on the way, too, for that YouTube channel, hopefully this summer. And like I've always been saying, man, chase dreams, not checks in the year 2020. Hope you guys continue to strive for success. I know things still seem relatively crazy in 2020. But, you know, take a deep breath, focus on yourself, and be the best version of yourself that you guys can be. Chase dreams, not checks. Uh, all gas no breaks in 2020 and yeah i got nothing else to promote i believe so that's gonna do it for this episode 111 this is noah alvarez the host of the my mike and i podcast signing off till next time